We are in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are continuing in our series through the pastoral epistles, and we are going to be closing out this first chapter here tonight uh, with the last three verses of chapter 1. So we're in 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20. And before we get there, uh, you know, uh, obviously, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a lot of your New Testament and throughout his writings, throughout his epistles, he employs many different images to sort of convey what the Christian life is like. He, um, most notably, he compares the Christian life to that of a farmer. If you actually just flip with me to Galatians chapter 6, you can see that pretty explicitly. Just as a way of introduction, uh, look at Galatians 6 verse 9. Paul, in describing the Christian life, describing what it's like, describing the things that are involved with it, in Galatians 6, 9, he says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It conveys the idea of a farmer, a laborer in the fields, reaping a harvest. Also, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, and he uses some of the same imagery. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul again writes, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God giveth the increase. Again, using this idea of a farmer planting and watering and saying that it is not there by their efforts, but it's by the Spirit of God by which we have any fruit, success, harvest in the spiritual realm is what he's referring to there. Also, if you are familiar with Paul's writing at all, you also know that he often compares the Christian life to uh, the area of athletics, comparing it to running, most notably. Uh, look at, if you're in 1 Corinthians, just flip over to chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he again uses another image to sort of convey what the Christian life is like. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes... Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. Look again back at Galatians chapter 5, and then look at verses 6 and 7. He employs some of the same imagery. Galatians 5 verse 6, he says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well, who did hinder you, that ye should not obey the truth? He says, ye did run well. Again, conveying this idea of a runner, an athlete. And he employs that a lot of other places, too, throughout his letters. And you can see it, again, in the same very letter, he's using two different images to sort of convey, this is what the Christian life is like, a runner, a farmer. But, as in our text tonight, I think we have, I think the most popular image of what a Christian is like, and that is of a soldier. The Christian life is most often compared to that of a soldier engaging in battle. And such is what we have in our text tonight. Look at verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1 if you're there in our text. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith. And a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here again, he's employing this familiar image of the Christian as a soldier. 
We could have sung that hymn too, Onward Christian Soldiers, right? We are familiar with that idea. Military metaphors really just populate all throughout the scriptures. David is constantly uh, talking and praying throughout the Psalms of being equipped for war. And that's not just wars that he would fight physically, but it's the spiritual war of his own soul, which he was referring to. Peter also talks about readying our minds for action. Actually, look at that verse over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to read it quickly. And in this verse, he's really talking about getting our minds ready for action. It's almost as if he's saying battle stations, you could say. He says, wherefore, this is 1 Peter 1, 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Battle stations, brethren, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up your loins, get ready, be ready for the battle that is coming. And then Paul, of course, throughout all of his letters, we know of uh, 2 Corinthians and also most famously in Ephesians chapter 6 where he talks about putting on the armor of God. He is likening the Christian life to that of a soldier. Engaging in war, engaging in a battle. And such is what he does here in 1 Timothy 1 in our text. He's using this picture of a soldier, of a warrior, in order to, I think, relay the seriousness of which, uh, in which Timothy is living and ministering. Timothy, where you are, as a pastor, the leader, the shepherd of Ephesus, you are a soldier. You are on the front lines of ministry. And he says, I charge thee, look at again, verse 18, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. Charge there is mandate, command. It's, it is literally a, 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 as a command as coming from a high-ranking officer. Look, uh, it's the same word that's used back in verse 2, where he says, or excuse me, uh, verse 2, unto Timothy, my, no, that's not my verse, uh, uh, verse 3, sorry, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Look at chapter 5, verse 21, the same idea is conveyed. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. And then at the close of the letter, look at chapter 6, verse 13. He says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession charge there coming up in all of those references. Again, it's a military term, and I think Paul is using this picture of a commanding officer giving another soldier a command, a, a mission a, to convey the weightiness, the seriousness, the significance of where, Paul is, or where Timothy is and what Timothy is about to do and continue doing. He was fighting for God's truth. Paul was living a life of a soldier, literally fighting for the truth of the gospel. And now it's as if he's passing again. He's passing that torch to Timothy. This is your fight now, Timothy. This is, was my charge, and now I am charging you. Again, it's as if Paul was on the front lines of ministry for his whole life. And now he is calling up the reinforcements, we might say. 
And now it's your turn, Timothy, to be on the front lines, to face the brunt of all of this war and all the hardship of, of this campaign. And that image becomes a lot clearer as he writes in the second letter of Timothy, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. But Paul's instruction here really conveys that seriousness, that severity of what Timothy is doing. Again, he's warring a good warfare, it says at the end of verse 18. He's fighting the good fight for the truth of God's gospel. And such is our orders as well as the church right now. We are still engaged in a battle. We are still at war. There is still a conflict to be engaged in. In fact, H.A. Ironside, the famous preacher, he actually says that very thing. He says, the Christian life is a conflict. When you are saved, you are put into battle. Against yourself and against all of the powers of the forces of darkness, as it says in Ephesians 6.12, I think it is. You are put into battle right away. And you are given this charge to fight the good fight of faith. To war a good warfare, just like Timothy was. Such is our orders as well. We are in a real fight with a real enemy. The real enemy is sometimes ourselves, but oftentimes too, it's the, the presence and the power of evil, of Satan lurking in this world, seeking to devour those whom he can devour. And I think tonight we are given a reminder of three specific battles with which we can be engaged, with which, with which I think we are called to be engaged as the church tonight. So we're going to look at those three battles very quickly. So the first one is in verse 18 and 19. I think we see a battle for convictions. A battle for convictions. Look again at verse 18. This charge, writes Paul, I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou, mightest, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith. Holding faith. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. Hold the faith. Keep it fast. Hold it firm. Guard your belief, Timothy. You are going to be inundated, young preacher, with so many things in this world with which you can be distracted, with which you can be uh, mired, with which you can be brought down. Hold your faith. Keep the line. Don't waver. This faith is conveying not just Timothy's personal belief, but really it has the idea of the entire Christian faith. Hold the creed of Christianity. Hold the gospel firm. This is your charge. The gospel which, with, which he was just preaching on, just writing about over and back up in verse 15. The gospel which says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That, Timothy... Hold firm to that. Don't let up in this fight for this. He's implying that this is a specific charge for Timothy. And he was to take this mission seriously and sincerely as he pastors Ephesus. As he pastors this church and seeks to lead them into truth. Timothy, hold faith. This is something which we have to continually fight as well. 
See, we have and we believe we have the gospel, the good news, which can change the world, which, as we learn in Acts 16, that can turn the world upside down. But believe it or not, there are a lot of other gospels in this world. There's a lot of other gospels that we can be distracted by. There's a lot of other truths that people propound and say, this will make life better. This will enhance your life. This will make your life easier. And it's easy to believe in those gospels. Those other things that can come into our lives and can distract us, can get us into uh, uh, some pretty bad things. I... I think of, though, when Paul elsewhere writes in Galatians, where he writes in the first chapter that if anyone comes to you, brethren, with another gospel, let him be accursed. (laughs) Strong language. But I think such is the seriousness of the fight for the gospel that if anyone comes and tries to change it or tries to mold it into something that it's not, tries to finagle it into something new, We have to say the same words as Paul. Let him be. uh, We can listen. No. We can can maybe. No. He says let them be accursed. And he repeats it twice. In the first chapter to Galatians. He's so serious. About anything uh, changing the gospel. Anything uh, mixing with it. That he says let them be accursed. Such I think is what Timothy was charged to do. Hold your faith. Hold the faith firmly, Timothy, in your hands. Don't swerve from this sound doctrine. You are, I'm charging you to to teach nothing but this. Don't get distracted by these vain janglings, as he likes to say in verse 6. Don't get distracted by these things that can come in and make you appear superior. Stand firm and stick with the sound doctrine that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Of whom I and of whom you ought to see yourself are the chief. (laughs) This, Timothy, hold firm in this. Don't shrink from this fight. This is the front lines. This is the front lines of Timothy's fight. And I think this is the reason why we fight is because it leads us into our next battle. The reason why we fight for our convictions is because as he continues, we have another battle which we have to fight, which is a battle for conduct. Look again, verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience. Hold faith, yes, hold your convictions firm, but also hold your conduct in check as well. Hold a good conduct in check as well. I think he's putting those in a particular order because wrong or mistaken thoughts about God, wrong convictions about God will naturally lead to wrong conduct for God. And he says here that you have to have your faith and then comes uh, your conscience. As he says elsewhere in verse 5, he says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. The same idea is being conveyed that this, Timothy, is your fight. To believe the right things about God. And then that will naturally lead to right behavior for God. 
And if we assume or adhere to something false about our Heavenly Father, our actions will be altered and they will be altered for the negative. But such is the gospel that Timothy was being charged to preach. The gospel is, is that Christ Jesus came to save sinners just as they are. Yes, but he never leaves the sinners right where they are. The gospel always results in transformation. Always. It always changes the sinners. It never leaves the sinners unaffected or unchained or unchanged. And it inspires new thoughts and actions and motivations. And such is why Paul is writing now. His new motivation is to see this change uh, uh, stand firm in Timothy. And, and also to stand firm in this church Ephesus with which he spent many years. He spent the longest time at this church. It was a dear church to Paul. And I think it's interesting that he uses the word conscience. Having and holding a good conscience. We're familiar with that idea. We think probably of, what's his face, from Pinocchio. Uh, Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide, so to speak. Well, that's not good advice. <laughs> that's not good advice unless your conscience is being told what the Bible says. Oftentimes our conscience leads us where we want to be led. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying holding uh, a good conscience, that is a healthy conscience, a conscience that is, is made healthy by the healthy words of the doctrine of God. Hold fast this good conscience, this good conduct which is derived out of a, out of a conscious and a con, constant diet of the truth. This is why he is saying here, stand firm in this fight. Feed your conscience the truth of the word. And that's where the conduct comes from. That's where this good conduct originates. You know, I think of my mom was a bank teller for many years uh, before, uh, or, or I think early on in my dad's ministry life, he was a bank teller. I, f I forget the timeline, so to speak. But I remember her talking, and I remember also, you can read this, that if a federal agent or a bank teller is looking to identify a piece of counterfeit currency, they do not study counterfeit currency. They don't look at all the ways that criminals can try and copy a piece of counterfeit money. They don't study a $20 bill, and, uh, or at least a counterfeit one, and look at all the ways that the criminal has devised to make a copy. What do they do? They study the real thing. They in, in, invest themselves and envelop themselves with what the real piece of money feels like and smells like and looks like. There's so many little, little details which can be missed, but that can only be known if you are an expert on the real thing. Such is our calling. Not to be distracted by all of these other, other gospels. These other truths, these other things that we can be mired in belief in and mired and distracted by, we are called to be experts in the real thing, the gospel of God, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. This is our truth that we envelop our lives in. And the good news is, as we learn from in Ephesians chapter 3, that we can never know the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of this love, the, the width of this gospel. We will always be pushing further into it. 
It is something that we can never exhaust. You can never come to the end of learning something new about this gospel of God. Such is why we can be experts on it for our entire lives and never truly be an expert on it. (laughs) We will always be in a posture of learning something new. Learning something fresh about this friend and savior of sinners. And this is our charge. That in order to defend the Christian faith as Timothy was charged with. He, we ought to be studying the Christian faith itself. And immersing ourselves in that. And as we feed our souls the truth of the gospel. A good conscience originates out of that gospel. And that leads us into our third battle. We had a battle for convictions, a battle for conduct. But look lastly, verses 19 and 20, at a battle for, or excuse me, a battle against consequences. A battle against consequences. Look at verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18. That thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith hath made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Timothy's battle, his charge for this war, is to war for faith and fidelity, for belief and behavior, as we've seen. And these are intricately, intricately tied together, as we, as we noted just a minute ago, that what you believe most has direct consequences on what you do, on your conduct. Which, again, here have serious, grave consequences in our lives. Paul here calls out two men, as he says graphically, who have made shipwreck of their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander. I often think about these men. Men whom perhaps Paul was close to. Men perhaps whom Paul was uh, familiar with for uh, earlier years of his life. But here they're called out for making shipwreck of their faith. But pause and think. What happened to these men's lives? I often think about that. Here they're called out for abandoning the faith. But who knows if they ever came back to it. But all we know is that they have made shipwreck of it. That by their errant and egregious teachings, their legacy is men who have made shipwreck of their faith. And who are delivered by Paul unto Satan. This is a direct consequence of not staying firm in this fight. This is the consequence, as he says in verse 6, for swerving aside, turning aside unto vain jangling, a shipwrecked faith. The truth of the gospel is run aground, and and you are forfeiting the Christian creed. This is what he's referring to here. That when you turn aside from the simplicity of the sound, healthy words of the gospel, you turn aside to something else. You lose this gospel entirely. Turning to something else apart from the gospel is to turn from the gospel altogether. And such is what he's saying here. These men have turned aside unto something other than the truth of the sound doctrine of God. And I have given them up unto Satan. And that's the second consequence. Not only shipwrecked faith, but sequestered fellowship. 
Because really that's what he's getting at here with this phrase. I wrestled with what this phrase was trying to mean. This sounds harsh, right? Paul, the apostle of grace, is here delivering men unto Satan? That sounds evil. That sounds harsh. But I think really what he's getting at is he is talking about these men have been excommunicated. They've been sequestered from the fellowship of this church. Their teachings were such that were so dangerous, so discordant with the sound doctrine of God that they had to be removed from that body. They're sequestered, no longer allowed to commune with this body of believers because of their teaching and because of their testimony. And it sounds harsh. But I think as we can see, there's a little drop of grace there. Look at the end where he says that they may learn. I'm doing it for their learning. It's a little drop of grace that Paul hints at. I hope he's, he's, you can see it. I hope that they learn. I hope that they learn of their errant ways and that they come back to the faith. That we can have restored, renewed fellowship again. That they learn not to blaspheme the name of Jesus. This is still grace. Jarring grace, yes, but it is still grace nonetheless. And this is the seriousness with which he viewed the charge that he was giving Timothy. And such is our seriousness as well. That we can't mess or meddle with this doctrine of God. That we can't uh, mess around with this truth of sound doctrine. As Hymenaeus and Alexander learned. You can flip to 2 Timothy. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But I'll just give you a little bit more context. 2 Timothy 2 verse 17. We have one of these figures popping up again. 2 Timothy 2 verse 17 Well, look at verse uh, 16. Paul writes again to this same young preacher, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus, our same guy, and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. We get a hint at what they have lost. Of how they had made their faith shipwreck. They had lost the resurrection. And by doing so they had lost all of Christianity itself. And such is why Paul is writing here. That they may learn not to blaspheme. That they may learn that in the resurrection is all of our Christian faith. Now I think about these figures. Hymenaeus, Alexander. Especially in light of current events. If you are up on your quote-unquote Christian news, I'm sure you're familiar with some pretty notable people who have stepped away from the faith. I think of earlier this year, there was this one pastor, I forget his name. He was an evangelical pastor at a very large church. He had been in ministry for 20 years, been a Christian for 40 years. But because it's the 21st century... (laughs) He took to Twitter, of all places, and released a stream of posts in which he denounced his entire Christian faith. 
Citing a lack of miracles. Citing a frustration with some very fundamentalist doctrines and beliefs and experiences in the church. Perhaps, yes, that were harsh, but I don't know. I don't want to judge on that. But I remember reading it and just feeling a gut-wrenching sadness in my soul. And I couldn't help but thinking, I remember specifically in this series of posts, this pastor, he cites a lack of miracles as a reason why he's denouncing the faith now. And I couldn't help but think of Mark 8, which I'm getting ahead of myself in another series. (laughs) But I couldn't help but think of Mark 8, where the Pharisees come to Jesus. Jesus has literally just fed the 4,000. And what do the Pharisees come up to Jesus and say? Give us a sign. (laughs) And this evangelical preacher has the gospel in front of him. He has the Bible open in front of him. And he's saying, I need to see a miracle. (laughs) He has it right in front of him. In the Bible, in the book of God, which relays the gospel of God. He has the miracle he needs right in front of him. He's lost his way. I don't know what's become of that pastor, but... His ministry, his faith is shipwrecked. I think of two, uh, probably most famously recently, is the uh, former, I guess I can say, Christian author Joshua Harris. If you're familiar with him at all. He wrote the famous dating book, whether you liked it or not, I'm not going to judge on that. I kissed dating goodbye. He wrote some other ones and stayed relevant and... But he also has departed from the faith. Listen to these words. He says, this is Joshua Harris, a former pastor and author and speaker in the Christian faith. And he says, again, because it's the 21st century via Instagram. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. I don't think there's sadder words that have ever been posted online. Perhaps there are, but these, again, make me feel a hole in my heart for men who know the truth and who are now getting away from the truth, who are shipwrecking their faith. And I can't help but think of all the other lives these men who have had influence on are shipwrecking the faith of others. And I just read recently of another one. Former Hillsong United songwriter Marty Sampson. I don't know if you like Hillsong United. I think some of their songs are pretty great. But he, similarly, a songwriter, a worship leader in a church, perhaps a different style of church, yes. But he too has taken to, yes, Instagram to declare his shipwrecked faith. Listen to what this former songwriter says. He says, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe No one talks about it. Christians can't be the most judgmental people on the planet. They also can be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I am not in anymore. Same guy who has written some of the most doctrinally sound Hillsong United songs, which is saying something. He's now saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe what this Bible says. 
what my preacher said. Why do I bring those up? Because it can be jarring, right? Jarring when we see uh, people step away from the faith. When we see uh, people who we have come to respect, perhaps come to know, come to love, uh, reject what appears that they have uh, known their entire lives. And what do we do with this? What do we do with confessions like this? What do we do with, with men who, who seek to depart from the faith in this way? Well, one, just like Paul, calling out these two men, yes, but we pray for them. We pray for men like that pastor and Marty and Josh. We pray for them and others who have been affected by this shipwreck faith. And instead of assuming, instead of judging them and assuming them to be perhaps the next Judases, let us pray that they are the next Peters. (laughs) Who, yes, denied the faith, but was used mightily by God later on in their lives. But also, I think too, as is our text here tonight, know what you believe. Hold your faith close to your chest. Hold it close to your heart. I remember my parents. <laughs> they used to beat that phrase into my head. I used to be like, what are, what are you talking about? Know what you believe, Brad. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And I can't... Help but thank them enough for beating that into my head when I didn't probably want to hear it again for the thousandth time. But now I know for sure what I believe. And I think of so many of my peers who I've seen do the same thing. Who've departed from the faith. Friends I grew up with in church. Who are no longer serving God. Who are no longer living for the truth of the Christian faith. Who are living for themselves and living a life that is anything but godly. Why did that happen? Because they didn't know what they believed. They were going through the motions. They were going through just the the robotics of the Christian faith. And it's something I feel very deeply. Because uh, I was a pastor's kid, right? I grew up in church. And I've always said that there's nothing more dangerous than a pastor's kid who is used to hearing preaching. I remember that because I was that. (laughs) I was the person who was so used to hearing preaching over again that I just assumed that I was a Christian. That I just assumed that I had this faith for myself. So often we can do the same thing. That we just assume that we have it because we know it, we've been familiarized with it. But until you've been brought to your knees in a gut-wrenching way and and shown your utter destituteness and depravity, you have not known what it means to believe in the grace of Jesus. It's very easy if you've grown up in church not to know what that looks like. I've never committed adultery. I've never... Hit someone in a, in, a, in a killing way. I've never drank a, a sip of alcohol or smoked one drug. Or any of those very egregious sins we go to. We've been in church my whole life. <laughs> you can still be brought to your knees. Because you can still be shown that you have offended the same God. And you are still in need of the same grace. Because you, just like we mentioned last week, are the very same chief of sinners. So know what you believe. 
And also double down on the gospel. When you hear of these, these figures, these prominent figures losing, departing the faith, don't grow weary of what happens to them. Don't grow weary and tired of seeing another person step away and draw more people away. Pray and double down on this gospel. Because this gospel is true. Hold it firm. As Paul is saying here. Hold it strong Timothy. You see these guys that are stepping away from the faith. That are making shipwreck of it. Hold faith. In a good conscience. And war. A good warfare. For that faith. This is our calling. As a church. As the family of God. To fight this warfare. I, one of my um, professors at the seminary I'm attending, he said this in a book. He said, the, crew, the true Christian walk is no stroll through the tulips. <laughs> it's a conflict, a quest, and a fight for faith. I think that's what Timothy is being shown here in this text. It's a fight. You are in a war, Timothy. Engage in this war. Engage in this conflict. Be about this battle. Hold the line. Keep the fight. Let us pray.